0: Hear the word of the Lord from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40, verses 21 to 26. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spread them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely they are planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing.
1: Uh, In Martin Luther's uh, explanation of uh, the first commandment, Uh, He writes that a God is in part a place of refuge in distress. And certainly the nation of Israel is soon to be in the distress of captivity. It's a compelling reason to cleave and to rest in God and to rest in him alone in all matters that pertain to salvation and eternal security because he alone is comfort. Again, these are the words that begin Isaiah chapter 14, verse 1, and God alone, respecting salvation and security, is a place of comfort, a place of rest and distress. He alone is supreme and sovereign, and therefore can comfort his people, and by application, everything else every other god, every other idol will disappoint. And every other religion is but a perversion of uh, of him, and his comfort lasts. Everything else will disappoint. It's where the uh, prophet is taking us this morning. Uh, He will uh, begin, as he did uh, last week, uh, to uh, mock their service of idols and false gods in light of who he is. So we will look at, uh, again, at the great uh, attributes of God and then uh, watch him mock their their false gods. Uh, The passage, by and large, is a rebuke because they have turned from the one true God to idols and uh, false, false gods. So it is a uh, polemic against idolatry. And, of course, it is our reminder that uh, false gods and idols cannot save. And while they may promise comfort, they cannot deliver. God uh, not only promises, but he's able to deliver because he is sovereign. It's the basis of our call to comfort. also will be a basis of the uh, ethical demand placed upon us uh, by the verses that will close out the chapter, uh, we begin this morning uh, by looking at this essential uh, attribute of God, His sovereignty, uh, and that is, uh, it is the clear teaching of Scripture. Uh, we uh, we know that uh, from uh, the rhetorical questions uh, that begin at the section, verse 21. prophet begins to ask them these questions because, again, they have turned aside and found another place of comfort other than the God of Scripture. Uh, I think the the questions uh, really is a a taunt. It's taunting the nation in the questions. Uh, The structure is very revealing. The two outer questions are, do you not know and have you not understood? Uh, But the uh, Uh, The two uh, inner questions, I think, are the essentials because they tell us how we know. And uh, that is, of course, uh, have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you? The answer is decisive, yes. They had the prophets. They had the prophet Isaiah. They did know. It had been declared to them. And for us as Christians, it's written in Scripture. But by and large, the unanimous decision of the church today is that, well, God is sovereign in terms of position, but not in practice. I would affirm that, uh, that is a non-sequitur. Uh, God not only has the position of supremacy in the world, as the great and only king, but he manifests his will at any point in time over everything and everyone at any occasion in which he desires to so manifest it. And everything is the product, if you will, of the outworking of the decrees of God. If you have any other affirmation, then God is not God. Why would we waste our time? That's the point of the scriptures. God is God. He alone is God. He's not only God, he not only is king, but he's sovereign. And the scriptures uh, clearly teach that. Again, it's not just a cognitive event. Do you not know? Have you not understood? Well, of course they knew. They'd been taught. But it is a reminder that the great teaching institutions of Israel are in marked failure. The Levites are teaching what? not the nature of God, as proclaimed in Revelation. Uh, Of course, they are acting as if they did not know, and the irony is stifling because of the prophetic revelation. Uh, I have this uh, theory that uh, most people don't want to go to church and don't want to read the Bible because it will make them responsible. They're responsible anyway. Ignorance is culpable. Certainly it's culpable to the nation of Israel. And that's why we have the Bible and the truth of the sovereignty of God is everywhere, every word, every vowel of the scripture. Uh, Psalm 115 is a uh, declaration of this essential truth uh, that should become to us a refuge in the midst of all of our distresses and an everlasting comfort. Uh, Psalm one hundred and fifteen, the third verse. But our God is in the heaven. That's his office. What does he do? He does whatever he pleases. He alone has free will. He alone. Absolutely supreme, and nothing can stop him or get in his way. What follows the text is the description of idols. They can, they have mouths, but they can't speak. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have eyes, but they cannot see. Noses, but they cannot smell. And furthermore, they may promise salvation, but they cannot deliver because they are totally unable and essentially worthless. Uh, Look at 10th verse of the psalm. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. God is our comfort, a place of refuge in every storm, every day, every time, uh, because he is not only king, but that he can manifest uh, the majesty of his rule. I think the point of the text, uh, as the prophet begins his section, is uh, the importance of revelation, and revelation declares uh, the sovereignty of God. Uh, this is a doctrinal position in theology that is so immense and so vast, you could not learn it apart from Scripture. And therefore, God has revealed himself in Scripture, and we turn our hearts to the Word of God and God's revelation of himself that we might think his thoughts after him revealed in the Word. On the other hand reject scripture or give it short shrift and you will soon find yourself on the path of idolatry and in harbors that cannot protect you when the violent storms come it's the importance of scripture in the heart of the church declaring who God is as he has revealed himself and not the product of our imagination uh, the rebuke that uh, the prophet will now begin with uh, is, is theological. God will uh, begin as a revelation of himself. We're going to turn to God. Uh, and then it will become anthropological. He's going to turn to man and their false religions. So if, uh, if the sovereignty of God, and the majesty of God is clearly proclaimed in Scripture, and it is, then what is that revelation? And Therefore, we turn to God. beginning, again, Isaiah chapter 40, and, and uh, the reminder of, of of who God is. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22. Again, he begins with God. You will never get the sovereignty if you begin anywhere else. We have Scripture, and Scripture is going to proclaim who God is. It's an affirmation that our monarch is supreme. Uh, he brooks no equals and there are no comparisons to God. It's an illustration of this in the great uh, land of uh, England. Uh, the Queen of England is a monarch. The form of government is a constitutional monarchy. And while she is very wealthy and has some power, she virtually has no power. Because uh, that is the way the system is set up. She's simply a figurehead. And I'm not so sure in all of Christianity if God is not seen as a figurehead. But he is not a figurehead. He is much more than king as the queen of England is queen. And by the way, one of the reasons that the Queen of England's power is limited because there's a Magna Carta at Runnymede. But there's no Magna Carta over the God that we worship. There is no American Constitution. There is no law that is above him. He is supreme over everything. And he is no figurehead. Isaiah says he is the one sitting above the horizon of the earth. It speaks to his divine enthronement. There is a threat to David's monarchy in Psalm 2. Conspiracy of the Gentile nations to cast off the rule of God in his appointed king, David. How does heaven respond? biting his fingernails. Uh, No, he who sits in the heavens laughs. And Why does he laugh? Because the efforts of the king to throw off God's constituted monarchy is utterly futile and a waste of time. The psalmist goes on to say that God has appointed a king to rule, and that rule cannot be overthrown. Uh, This psalm is quoted a great deal in the New Testament referencing Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And we know as we take the theology of the second psalm and apply it to Christ, we now know that he is the eternal everlasting king and all of the nations of the earth and all the men and religions of the earth will try to cast off his rule, but heaven laughs because they cannot because he alone is a sovereign appointed king appointed by God, God's divine son, And so the psalmist ends. O kings, judges of the earth, show discernment. Have understanding. Worship Him with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to Him lest He become angry and you perish in the way. Kiss the Son. Bow before Him lest His wrath break out upon you. Because He is now the divine appointed King, the Lord Christ, of whom David is ultimately pointing very fond of the doxology of the apostle paul in 1st timothy uh, paul is acknowledging himself as a chief of sinners but god came and saved him and so paul writes what we would expect now to the king eternal immortal invisible the everlasting god be honor and glory forever and ever The Apostle Paul, understanding the magnificence, the break of salvation upon a sinner, praises God is the only eternal, everlasting, invisible king because that is who he is. The only king. Every other power in the world is utterly derivative from him, derived from him who is the great king. So again... God is enthroned, sits upon the vaults of the earth. In contrast, the ones sitting upon, same verbal form as God, the ones sitting upon the earth are like grasshoppers. It's an of the utter insignificance of man compared to God. It's an illustration of this uh, word, grasshopper, In Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, it's a reduplication, recapitulation of the fall of man in the fall of a the nation. They send spies out to look at the land, and uh, yes, it's a land that God has promised them. And uh, and they say, oh my goodness, there's giants in land, and we're like grasshoppers. I mean, they're so strong and mighty, and we're just we're just tiny little low insects upon the earth. Of course, it's a failure because it is utterly insignificant what the men in the land look like and how powerful they are in light of the fact that God has promised in the land and is going to give it to them. But they fall because they fail to reckon the power and the majesty of God and that he owns the land of Canaan and his will to give it to them. But they, they fall because they fail to recognize the majesty of God. It's a reminder for all of us as Christians. We encounter terrible circumstances throughout our lives or will encounter such. God is still on his throne in control of every circumstance. Again, it's the expression of the vast gulf between the Creator and his creatures that God is immense and vast in comparison to man. Second, the prophet tells us that his house is the universe. The heavens, the cosmic expanse of all of the constellations are like a tent, and God just simply throws it into existence. And if you're like me and you go camping it, looking for all the stakes and where does this pole go? It's only been six months since I pitched my tent last and I'm lost and found. I need someone to come help me put my tent up. Uh, You know, they're there. God just simply throws all the constellations, the Milky Way and all of the rest of them are like his tent because he's sovereign in his power and his majesty. Something of a reference of this in Isaiah chapter 66 Verse 1, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. So where is there a house that you can build for me? I find so many Christians think that we're we're going to build a house for God in the Middle East. Really? We We could build throughout all eternity and not build a house big enough for the majesty and the glory, the infinite perfections of God who is king. We belittle God when we think that we're going to do something special for him in light of the fact that he is infinite and eternal and absolutely majestic in all of his perfections. And I've been in some of the great cathedrals in Europe. 500 years they built the temple in Ely. Not enough time to build a house, to contain the glory and the majesty of God. I like this metaphor because in America, we uh, we seemingly are enamored with uh, square footage. I mean, square feet in your house, brother. I've always liked that television program, uh, moving on up, you know. God's not moving on up. He has no Joneses to compete with. The square footage in his house is incalculable because of the majesty of his perfections. And, of course, we are, by comparison, thats the point, by comparison, uh, we, are, we are nothing. Now, by the way, as Christians, we are something. We are the sons of God by his eternal covenant. His everlasting love that broke upon us from eternity past. We are the sons of God, adopted into his family by his sovereign grace. But our significance is derived from God, not our cars, not our clothes, not the square feet in our house, not our positions or our promotions. One thing alone makes us significant, and that is God is our Father. We are his sons by virtue of. The Lord Jesus. So uh, the prophet is telling us about the majesty of our God and his sovereignty. Now he is going to take the position and apply it to the greatest of men. And if the greatest of men, then all men. Verses 23 to 24. He says of God that he brings rulers to nothing. The literal translation of this is he he is the one giving them their positions. You know, we think of politicians. They get the campaign strategy right and they're smart in data mining and smart with all of the use of all the technology. Uh, Well, that may be true in terms of an earthly sense, but ultimately it was God who gave them their positions. This is exactly the theology that the Lord Jesus teaches Pilate, isn't it? John chapter 19, the 11th verse. Worldly sense, Pilate is the superior, but in the absolute sense, Jesus is the superior. and That's exactly what he tells Pilate. Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Pilate owed his position to heaven. You know, would that our government, the greatest to the least, would recognize that they had their positions by divine appointment, and they ought to act accordingly. That is the way of man. Forget the majesty of God. Comes by divine appointment, and so it is he makes the judges or the leaders to be meaningless, The word meaningless is that word that's found in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, that the earth was without form and void before God begins the great acts of creation to restore order out of chaos and beauty out of ugliness. In contrast, fallen nature, we're enamored, are we not, by high society. We like to drop names. Those names mean nothing to God. He's just simply not impressed in light of who he is. For one thing, as I've suggested, he gives them their position and they owe it to him. Their talent, skills, intellect are totally dependent upon God, the giver of gifts to men. Paul has been profoundly attracted to Job chapter 1. He is struck with uh, every ill circumstance conceivable and imaginable. The text reads, in light of all that had befallen him, that Job worshipped God and confesses God gives and God takes away. Essentially, the confession of a man who understood the sovereignty of God in the midst of unprecedented suffering, that God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If you don't understand the sovereignty of God, those things are so powerful and so immense and so devastating, they will sweep you away except the majesty of the sovereignty and the kingliness of God catch you and hold you as a place of comfort amidst the distresses of life. I mean, Luther is correct. A God is where you go when you're in great distress. So where do men go? I know where the church goes. It goes to the greatness of the majesty of God. Isaiah now repairs to a number of, uh, lack of a better term, agricultural metaphors. God plants and sows them, gives them scant time to take root. And then when he's finished with them, he merely blows upon them. And they topple. And they're gone. The presidents, the prime ministers, the admirals, the generals, just simply blows upon them and they're gone. An interesting uh, word that we've already looked at in Isaiah chapter 40, but... Uh, it's also found Exodus chapter 15. Uh, the uh, children of Israel have, uh, are being pursued by Pharaoh, and the God uh, makes a way in the Red Sea, creates dry ground, and Pharaoh and his armies follow them there. What does God do? He simply blows upon them, and the waters cover. Pharaoh and all of his chariots. He doesn't have to look at a manual at the library on how to destroy the armies of Pharaoh, the greatest power in the world at the time. Uh, He doesn't have to uh, gather in his generals, his joint chiefs of staff, and uh, gather in his national security advisor. No, he doesn't have to do any of that. All he has to do is blow upon them and the deeps cover Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 15. 10 to 13. Thou didst blow with thy wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praise, working wonders? Thou didst stretch out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. In thy loving kindness, thou hast led the people whom thou hast redeemed. In thy strength, thou hast guided them to holy habitation. All of our enemies, uh, God will simply blow upon them when he's finished with them and when they've done his work, his sovereignty. And they're gone. The storm of judgment, carry them away. Again, isn't that the truth of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 7? The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of God blows upon them. There's little that I'm able to accomplish around my home by blowing on things. Maybe a candle. Not much else. The greatest empires of the world, God just simply has to blow upon them and they're gone. They cease to be when they have finished his will. Doesn't have to scheme, doesn't have to consolidate his power. He doesn't have to get out his checkbook and wonder if there's enough money in the treasury to resource his endeavors. He doesn't have to go make alliances. Maybe there's another God somewhere I can go and make an alliance with. All that's needed is a quick breath, they dry up and they're gone. There's something of this theology that applies to the nation of Israel colleague of the prophet, Jeremiah, chapter 13. What happens when we leave the revelation of God and God's revelation of himself as utterly supreme and sovereign and begin to find refuge in the midst of our distresses somewhere else other than the God of Scripture? Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 24. I will scatter them like the drifting straw to the desert wind. Why is that? Verse 25, because you have forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. The moment you begin to turn away from Scripture, you're going to forget God. You're going to find yourself in a difficult way. And the moment you begin to find refuge in all the churches of the land of all over the world who give short shrift, to the word of God as it speaks to who God is, you will likewise find yourself in a difficult way. You have forgotten me, God tells the children of Israel. So the storm will come and blow them away like, like a piece of straw. When God withdraws his favorites over them, the last comparative is the winnowing process that separates wheat from chaff which is light and of no value whatsoever, is blown away. It's the kings of the earth, like chaff. Simply the wind picks them up and carries them away. Point of the text is that God is sovereign over the mighty, the strong, the swift of foot. And the nations they lead and the gods that they promote are meaningless to him. You know, by the way, by application, that, that applies to your circumstances. He's still God over them. I, I don't know, maybe you're struggling with an evil boss or employer. God appoints kings and rulers and judges and leaders. Very fond of Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it like the rivers of water, whatsoever he wills. The heart of the king, the president, the prime minister, is in the hand of God, he just simply blows upon it as he wills to do. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel's in a Difficult, uh, straight, but God reveals to him his majesty. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. They come and go at his good pleasure, by his appointment, by his giving. He sets them in power and will blow upon them when he's finished. Great description of our Savior in Revelation chapter 1. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's who our Savior is. Substantive use of the participle, literally ruling the kings of the earth, our Lord Christ has ascended his throne, sits upon the vaults of the heaven, ruler of the kings of the earth. So what about our trees? God plants the the wicked, the unregenerate, Seats of government are filled with such. God plants them. He's finished with them. They dry up and they blow away. Not so with the people of God. Essential lesson to the psalmist. Introduction to the Psalter. Psalm 1 of the righteous man. His leaf will not wither. It's even greater expression of this in uh, Psalm uh, 92 of the righteous man. When God is finished with the wicked man, he will blow him away. Psalm 92, beginning to read in the 12th verse. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of, of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age, they shall be full of sap and very green to declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Two trees, one is simply blown away, the other will stand the test of time that our leaf will not wither, whatsoever we do will prosper because of him who plants us by his sovereign power and grace. I mean, these are essential doctrines because absent them, we'll try to find a port in every storm other than the great God of heaven. And those ports are no safety at all. Absent sovereignty, there's little to hold us. With it, our loyalties will not shift. Again, the text in its context is a rebuke uh, for their idolatry and following false gods. Given the majesty of the one true God, who's not just king, but who imposes his rule on everyone, everything. Now, the final rebuke is another rhetorical question uh, going back to Isaiah chapter 40. Who will you compare me with in light of who I am? Who will you liken me? Now God is speaking. Verse 25, to whom will you liken me that I should be as equal, says the Holy One. Analog, of course, the 18th verse, same question. Same answer, no comparison. Interesting question, is it not, in light of our great educational institutions in America? Christianity is just another religion, just another God, many roads to the great castle in the sky that's nonsense our God is not to be compared there is no comparison they are less than the grasshoppers that scurry over the world the cockroaches that come out in our homes at dark utterly meaningless and worthless he's sweeping away all comparisons so that he alone is incomparable Is without equal. The rebuke is a direct attack upon their worship of the stars. Uh, Israel is not yet, but they will be in captivity. Why? Because they worship the stars, among other things. And so God will take them away in judgment. Uh, Everywhere in Scripture, they are warned against this. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 19. Uh, do not look at the sun and the moon and the stars and begin to worship them. That's exactly what they did. Jeremiah chapter 8, tragic commentary on the failure of the nation because they forgot God. So gather all the bones of the kings and the wise men and the smart men and bring them out here in the field. They're dead and they're broken. They're pulled out of their graves. And why is that? Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 2. They will spread them out to the sun, the moon, and to all the host of heaven, the stars, which they have loved and which they have served and which they have gone after and which they have sought and which they have worshipped. And God says, I created stars. And the text reads, uh, he leads their host by number and calls them by name. Uh, The word host is a a military term, like an army. God is the uh, one true great general and all the stars follow him. In other words, they're worshiping the lesser and forgetting the greater. And even the lesser is not to be compared to the creator. The stars are his soldiers, and he is in command of all of them. He names them, meaning that he has dominion over all of them. Again, we need to catch something significant of that, to name all the stars. How would you like to have a job of naming all the streets in Oklahoma City? Well, that would be easy. No, it'd be a difficult job. There's lots of streets. There's only so many capitals and so many famous people. Of all of the stars, God names them all and controls them all and has dominion over them as the greater king. And because of his omnipotence, not one is missing. It's like every morning in the earth or every evening when the sun Sets. God commands his stars into formation, and not one of them is missing, because He is their great general. I know some of you are probably saying, "Well, yeah, we don't, we don't do that in America." Yeah, we do it all the time, I and mean, it's all over. You, you astrological reports, you know, newspaper, and we, we, you know, when I was. Uh, Shall we say a young lad, sixties and seventies, there was, was a band called the Fifth Dimension. That a hit song, remember Back, oh, Age of Aquarius. The alignment of the planets will bring harmony and the mind's true liberation. What a bunch of folly. It's not even good astronomy. But that's the way it is in America. We make our own religions and worship our movement of the planets even when it doesn't for fit with science. The great song of the beatniks and the hippies. I'm not so sure that has ever been digested fully in our culture. At some point, it turns to the drug stupor that's everywhere in our country. My wife was telling me yesterday, reading a... Op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. that Over 50,000 people die every year from opioid abuse. That's more than automobile accidents. How's the age of Aquarius working out for America, baby? Not too well. But it is different in the church. We reject the folly of men who dream up their own gods according to their imaginations. We follow scripture. God is king. God is sovereign. And he makes us in his sovereignty his sons. Charles Spurgeon once said that men will allow God everywhere except on his throne. They will allow a God, but he must not be king. That is to say, he is the product of their imagination. We reject that. We worship the God of Scripture. As he reveals himself ruling the vaults of the earth, and nothing can resist his will or stay his hand. We we follow the prophet, we learn from him. It's an essential truth. By the way, as Christians, we love him on his throne, and we love his sovereignty that came to our lifeless hearts and spoke, and we believed. His power. That we love him because of his sovereignty. That he is our place of refuge. All the terrible things that are happening all over the world today, regardless of the country you pick or the neighborhood, we repair to the Lord Jesus Christ, the firstborn of the dead, the faithful witness, and the ruler, the kings of the earth. He is our refuge, our comfort. Isaiah chapter 40, comfort, comfort, my people. Christ is our comfort. He shed his blood, gave himself as a ransom. All of the world, he is ruler, and we find our comfort in him. May May it be so, as the prophet has told us. May it be so in every day of our lives. Regardless of the storms, uh, he is our port, he is our stay, he is our fix, he is our moorings and our comfort. In reality, the prophet comfort, comfort my people, is in the great God of heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ, the ruler kings of the earth. May God make it so all of our lives and certainly in our corporate worship this day and every day thereafter.